Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City, a journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today it's with great pleasure that I introduce my guest, retired professor of history of archaeology and history at the University of Haifa, Adrian Boas. Adrian is the author of a large number of volumes dedicated to archaeological research, particularly of a crusading period in the Holy Land and Jerusalem. So today we're going to talk about uh, Jerusalem in the time of the Crusades. We're going to step back into a mostly neglected uh, topic, certainly in our podcast, but also we're going to talk about other locations uh, that um, Professor Boas has excavated in the last few years. Lastly, we're going to talk about something that he has been writing just in recent times. In fact, Professor Boas just published a novel, an historical novel called The Sulfur Priest, uh, a very interesting title, and we will hear also about these future projects. But in the meantime, Adrian, welcome. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm very pleased to be able to participate. Now, we can't escape the fact that you have a very uh, soft, warm Australian accent. But I must ask, Adrian, what is your Jerusalem? In other words, what is your connection with the city? Well, as a... Uh, an observant Jew, I grew up with, obviously with Jerusalem as, as something central, more of an abstract Jerusalem, living in Australia, as you mentioned. Uh, so Jerusalem was something quite far away. I didn't know all that much about it physically, but I, I knew Jerusalem from the Bible and Jerusalem from the prayers and from the history books. In 1969, my family emigrated. I was 17. Uh, the family, My family emigrated to Israel and... Uh, um, I first saw Jerusalem in the summer of 69, uh, coming up from the desert, from an uh, absorption center in, uh, in, the, in the Negev, uh, via the Dead Sea. And so the first view 
ahead of Jerusalem was coming from the east, um, from the uh, road from the Dead Sea. So that wonderful panorama of the city and the new city in the background. Um, and so it, it was a very moving experience for me right from the very beginning, from the first time I actually saw Jerusalem as a physical Jerusalem. Um, subsequently, I lived in various places uh, in the more towards the coast. And I remember every time I came up to Jerusalem, it was sort of a spiritual uplifting, a feeling of, of something very special going up the hill towards the city. It was something that was very moving. And uh, eventually, and so I, all, all those years, I desi desired to come and live in Jerusalem. And eventually I did when I got married in 1978. And I've been living mostly in Jerusalem ever since. And uh, today I live five minutes from Jaffa Gate by foot. So it's right in the heart of the city. Um, and to me, Jerusalem is a very, uh, well, it's home. It's, it's, it's an experience living in a city like this. I've lived in uh, London, in Melbourne, in Rome. Uh, Jerusalem is, is different. It's, it's, um, it has a, a completely different atmosphere from any other place I've lived in, and it's, and it's home for me. So Jerusalem for me is home for, for the good and the bad, for the beauty and the ugliness. It has everything. Um, I wouldn't live anywhere else. Let me take you to uh, a different kind of Jerusalem. So you wrote this book, Jerusalem in the time of the Crusades. Jerusalem was taken by the Crusaders in uh, 1099. I was wondering how was uh, life back then? How was the uh, sort of uh, the feeling and the groove of the city more than a millennia ago? Well, it, it changed over time, of course. So when, when the uh, Crusader armies arrived in the summer of 1099, after a, a, um, a month and a half managed to occupy the city, it was a very different city living in Jerusalem at that time, at the beginning of the 12th century, would have been very, very different from living in Jerusalem, say, 50 years later, because it was an empty city. Most of the population had, had either fled or been slaughtered. Um, and the uh, many of the crusaders who had taken part in the occupation of the city didn't remain in the city as well. So it was an empty city in the first years and the first few decades. So it was, it was not uh, a city that would be very comfortable to live in. Uh, it was under constant threat of, of the marauders coming over the, over the walls and entering the city. There were no, not enough people to defend the walls. Uh, in the medieval sources, we read about people being attacked in their houses within the city. So, so it, was, it was a very difficult city in those early years. Um, by the middle of the century, the picture is entirely different. And that's because, obviously, Jerusalem was the, the heart of the crusader movement the whole point of the crusader movement was to recover the holy land for christianity so there was a major effort made by the leaders um, to um, to improve the conditions within the city and a whole series of of uh, uh, different acts were carried out in order to to increase the population uh, the christian population and to um, to improve the facilities so that people would would desire to come here and to live in the city. And, uh, and this included obviously uh, economic issues of uh, reducing taxes and things like that. But it was also a, a tremendous amount of building activity of improving facilities uh, for, to, to encourage pilgrims to come to the city. So building, rebuilding 
churches, many of which or most of which had been destroyed at the beginning of the 11th century, rebuilding the churches, building um, hostels and hospices, hospitals um, um, and commercial centers within the city. And this activity uh, and, and fortifying the walls, refortifying re the walls as well. So all of this activity resulted in a city which by the middle of the century was uh, fully populated and, um, and, and lively and with commerce and with a, a lot of tremendous amount of pilgrim, pilgrimage entering the city. And so it, was, it, was a, it, it had gone through this complete change basically from the conditions in the early years of the 12th century to uh, the middle of the 12th century. And then it, it remained more or less um, an active and, and developing city until the uh, collapse in 1187, following the Battle of Hattin. And then you have a, a second period of Jerusalem in the 13th century, which is very little known about. I wrote an, an article on this because the, there's a tendency amongst historians to think that Jerusalem in the 13th century, uh, when it was recovered by Frederick II in uh, 1229 and was held for slightly less than 15 years, was, was nothing more than a, a sort of an army camp. And in fact, that's not really the case. And there's, there's evidence of building of, of uh, new markets and, and uh, uh, various other construction activity and commercial activity in the city. So, so and even uh, possibly one of the churches was built in that time. Well, most of the churches had been built already in the 12th century. So, so there's also this brief 13th century uh, phase, which is of interest. I was curious about the population. You talked about obviously Jerusalem under the Crusaders was mostly a Christian city. I was wondering if there was any room for Muslims and Jews or were they completely excluded from the city? Well, officially they were excluded, but in fact, there seems to have been a small, there was a small community of Jews in the area of the citadel, uh, David Citadel at the western side of the city, um, who were involved in, in um, dying of cloth, uh, in the dyeing industry. Um, but this might have been extremely small. It's, there's a, a dispute about the number because the, um, the source is a Hebrew source and the, and the uh, letter that was used for, in, in Hebrew numbers are given in letters and the letter that was used could either mean Four or two hundred, so so, which is quite different. But but even you know the, the most two hundred people, but much more likely uh, a couple of a small number of people were of Jews were involved in this uh, industrial activity by uh, what's today Jaffa Gate or the Citadel, um, and there may possibly have been some Jews and perhaps Muslims in the hospital in the hospital compound. There are some hints at that. There's nothing uh, that's clear cut, but there are some suggestions that that's a possibility um, um, involved in some way, either as patients or as doctors. It's it's not entirely clear. Um, and there are references to um, to merchants coming into the city, Muslim merchants coming into the city um, in the 12th century. But officially, it's it's a Christian city, and only Christians are allowed to reside in it officially. And probably we should say only Catholics, right, because also Orthodox were not uh, 
necessarily part of the uh, Jerusalem milieu. Well, no, that's not entirely true. You had a, um, a um, you had a, not only Latins, but you had Orthodox communities in the city as well. Um, and uh, there was, for example, in what's today the Muslim quarter, um, and there are various uh, Orthodox churches as well. So there was there were Orthodox communities, but it was it, it was largely a Latin city, a Western Christian city. I was wondering if you can give us a sense of the landscape of Jerusalem, because nowadays people tend to look at the city uh, through the lenses of the old city and the walls that were essentially built by uh, the Ottomans when they took over in 1517. But obviously Jerusalem in, in the 12th century was uh, different. It had obviously some of the geographical landmarks that we still know nowadays, particularly the Roman structure, but the walls were not there. So I was wondering if you can paint for us like a, a map. Obviously, it's very hard on a podcast, but just to get a sense of how the city looked like. Yes, well, it's to, to a degree, it's not all that different from, in, it was not all that different in the 12th century than what it is today, what the old city constitutes today. So you have the, the um, Ottoman walls are founded on the, basis of, of earlier walls in most parts, not entirely, but in most parts. In the, when, the, when the Crusaders arrived, the walls had been renewed in the, the century before, in the 11th century, uh, by, under the Fatimids, uh, the Egyptians. So you had um, a reconstruction of the southern wall, um, which is basically within along most of its length identical or within a few meters uh, distance from the medieval wall. Um, and it's a, it seems to have been a renewal of the Roman, the Hadrian Wall, the wall built by, by the Emperor Hadrian. It's along the same line. So but before that, until 1033, the wall extended much further south. And that was destroyed in 1033 by an earthquake. And then the, this new line was reconstructed, but it appears to follow basically the southern line of uh, Elia Capitolina. And that's the southern line of the city today. The eastern wall has not really changed at all. And the northern wall is um, also the basically the same along the same lines. The only thing that changed um, perhaps, well, I wouldn't say radically, but it changed somewhat is the northwestern the, or the northern part of the western wall from Jaffa Gate and further north, uh, which was extended out in the 11th century to the position it takes today. And you can actually see just uh, along the base of the Ottoman wall, you can see the construction that was the Fatimid construction, which, which uh, is, is quite easy to see, actually. So, so there's not the the external outline of the city hasn't changed really. It was the same in the in the 12th century that it is today basically within a few meters. There are you know minor positions along the walls where it's changed but on the whole it's pretty much the same. Within the city you had um, uh, the city was divided into quarters but not quite the same as today. So today you have the the Christian quarter in the northwest, the Armenian quarter in the southwest and you have the Jewish quarter in the southeast and the uh, Muslim quarter in the, in the northeast. Um, so in the, in the Crusader period, the uh, northeastern quarter, which had formerly been a Jew the Jewish quarter, had be 
been largely occupied by um, uh, Oriental Christians. So th that goes back to what we were talking about before. Um, obviously, around the, the Northwest, around the uh, Church of the Holy Sepulchre was entirely Latin and the rest and, and the Armenians were still as they are today in the Southwest. Um, the Jew, what's today the Jewish quarter was sort of a mixture of Christian communities. So you have a, a German community, then you have various other uh, Eastern and Orthodox and uh, and Latin communities there. The other another feature that's very prominent in the city today, uh, but and was prominent then, is of course the Temple Mount. So you have the Temple Mount. It's um, changed in that the occupation of the Temple Mount in the Crusader period was you had the Templars living in the southern section in where, uh, the Al-Aqsa Mosque and, the, and a series of very monumental structures built around it. And further to the north, you have the Dome of the Rock, which had been converted into a church and was an Augustinian uh, community, was held by an Augustinian community. Um, the other focus would be the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which uh, is, was rebuilt in the 12th century and is basically what we see today is mostly that 12th century reconstruction of the church which had been destroyed in the Fatimid, in the early 11th century under the Fatimids. And another thing which has uh, been retained and still functions today are the markets in the city. Most of the medieval markets are still functioning. So there's actually a lot of, of elements in Jerusalem that were um, constructed or converted in the 12th century and are still um, and, and still preserve that, their appearance today. Obviously, a lot of, of Crusader Jerusalem's vanished. Um, the royal palace that was next to the citadel has gone. Um, and most of the hospital compound, what's today referred to as the Moristan, is, was destroyed. It was in ruins of the, in the 19th century and by the 19th century and in the early 20th century, a lot of it was demolished to build the, the present day Aftimos uh, uh, markets. Um, so, so a lot of things have vanished, but still Jerusalem retains a lot of these elements of, of Frankish Jerusalem. You can walk through the city and walk into um, Crusader market streets that were built in the middle of the 12th century, and you can see the remains of Frankish houses along the streets, often not intact uh, segments or fragments, but, but they, are, they do exist and they can be seen. You partially responded to my, my next question. Uh, mm. I was thinking about uh, pilgrims particularly, uh, but also tourists often, they visit Jerusalem through the lenses of uh, the Bible or religious text anyway. I was wondering if someone would go around Jerusalem trying to find the remnants of Crusader Jerusalem, what would be left? And you already mentioned a number of buildings and of course also what has uh, disappeared in time. And I was wondering if there's anything else that might be seen that would connect these visitors to uh, Crusader Jerusalem, whether uh, symbols or, I don't know, public um, uh, buildings like uh, water fountains or you know any kind of uh, visual sort of material? Well, yes, there are a lot of, of elements in the city that can be that can be recognized as being Frankish and and some as an archaeologist, obviously, these are the details that you look for. Uh, one of the things that's very helpful in studying Crusader archaeology, and it's true about Jerusalem, as it's true about many other places, 
is that the Franks brought with them uh, a number of, of um, styles of architecture and manners of constructing buildings that were European and were entirely out of place here in this region prior to the Crusades and after the Crusades. So if you see construction with a particular type of tooling on the stonework or uh, elements like um, uh, mason's marks, which are marks incised on the stone to, in order for the mason to be paid for the amount of stones he's prepared for construction. Uh, you can identify if it's, if it's in, if there are enough of them that it's not uh, reuse, but you, or you can actually see a, a complete structure or a large section of the structure, you can identify it and you can date it to the Crusader period. So for example, if you walk through um, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, for example, which as I mentioned, is largely a 12th century building, you can see this diagonal tooling, which is typical Western European uh, man, man of working st stone, of finishing stonework. And you can see the Mason's marks on the stones and you can, you can see quite clearly that, that this is a, a crusader structure or Frankish structure. Another, another example, um, if we're talking about these smaller details, um, in Jerusalem, on a number of buildings, there are symbols carved on the facade of, of private dwellings and shops, which are, are identifiable as symbols of the military orders. And military orders were crusader foundations of the 12th century, the Templars, the Hospitallers, and later the Teutonic Knights. And you have in Jerusalem, uh, on a number of buildings, the symbol of the order of the temple, which is a, a triangle with an inverted T, or simply a T, an upright T. And you have, um, uh, which is particularly of interest to me because I've been working for many, many years with uh, on matters relating to the Teutonic order, the German military order, which was founded after the fall of Jerusalem. But you can see in Jerusalem, a number of buildings where you have the Teutonic symbol, which is a circle with the T, which is actually an OT, Ordo Teutonic. So it's, it's this, these symbols identify buildings or shops, often shops, but they can be private dwellings, as properties of the military of the military orders. Uh, and it's quite interesting to, to note that in some cases these properties were later possessed, became possessions of uh, Muslim religious uh, in, um, institutions, and they became the waqf of different relig Muslim religious institutions. And you can see the symbols have moved from one. Uh, religion in one period to another, the same function, but in, in another, um, for another community uh, or another religion. Um, for example, the possessions of the uh, Templars became possessions of the, uh, the Waqf uh, of El-Aqsa. Uh, El so, so you have uh, um, elements like that. Another thing you'll find um, remnants of structures that were built other than I mentioned churches, obviously a lot of churches were built in the Crusader period. Many of them are, are ruins today, but there, will, there are, uh, the ruins survive. But you also have uh, features, you mentioned uh, water, fountains, things like that. So you have pools that were constructed. Um, some of them were constructed in the Crusader period. Some of them were simply restored. Uh, perhaps the most interesting one is the pool known today as the Sultan's Pool outside the north or the southwest of the city. So it's in the uh, Hinom Valley, which is running along the western side of the city to the extending to the south. And uh, what was done there was a, a 
a wall was struck uh, constructed across the valley to 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 capture the the rainfall the water that was flowing down and there may have been an, an, a pool at some earlier period but we have um, um, historical sources that just describe the construction of this pool in the 12th century by a chap named Germain or Germanicus. So it's a crusader water reservoir and there are a number of other reservoirs in the city. Um, and um, many other minor things, uh, uh, pieces of, of uh, or sections of shops. I mentioned the markets, which are perhaps the most interesting because you have intact um, market hall, or not market halls, market streets or bazaars constructed in Jerusalem. Um, there's what's known as the triple market in the center of the city, which is actually a mid 12th century structure built by Queen Melisenda. And to, to its south, there's another very uh, elaborate, a very large uh, market, which is also a crusader structure and possibly dating to the 13th century, to that brief interlude in the 13th century when the Franks returned to Jerusalem. And there are other um, uh, structures in the city. So, so uh, and money exchanges and things like that. So yes, there's a lot of, of Crusader Jerusalem that can be discovered by a traveler, a pilgrim, or a, just a tourist uh, interested in history. I must admit my own ignorance. I, I've seen the symbols that you mentioned many times, particularly the OT of the triangle. Uh, but probably because I, I've seen them uh, uh, mostly around what nowadays would be a Christian quarter. Uh, I, I always thought they were connected to the uh, Greek Orthodox Patriarchate. But I was there, there is a there is a symbol for the Greek Orthodox Patriarchate. It's slightly different, but this is a quite quite a simple design of a triangle with an inverted T in it. So it's quite it's quite distinct, and um, it appears in Jerusalem as a uh, an ownership mark, as I mentioned, so identifying buildings that belong to the military orders, but appears elsewhere on on Templar objects, for example, a uh, an, a lead token from Atlit, which was a, a, a Templar uh, castle, um, a, uh, a, as Mason's marks in, uh, um, in Montfort, uh, for example, which means that there must have been a Templar Mason working with the Teutonic uh, masons in the in the construction of the castle in 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 Sidon and many other castles where we know the Templars were were located we find these symbols so yeah and the and the Teutonic one as well it, it's quite interesting uh, um, to note that it appears in Jerusalem near the Temple Mount uh, where there are also Templar symbols um, on the street of the chain um, and it also appears in the Armenian quarter. And these are two areas which appear to have been given by uh, the Emperor Frederick II to the Teutonic Knights in the 13th century when, they, when he, he recovered Jerusalem and, he, and the Templars didn't return to Jerusalem because the Temple Mount remained in Muslim hands. So these properties were handed over to the Teutonic order and these symbols appear exactly more or more or less exactly where we would expect to find them, where the Teutonic order received properties. I guess there's always something new to discover in Jerusalem. I wanted to ask you something about uh, people now. We talked about buildings and structure, which obviously accommodated uh, 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 humans and human activities. So who were the people 
of Crusader Jerusalem were all uh, just military or there's also room for uh, a civilian population? And what did they do? Well, there was certainly a civilian population. Uh, you had, as I mentioned there, you have the military orders on the Temple Mount and you have the hospitals in the, in, um, the area around the or south of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and you have uh, um, uh, the leper knights outside of the northwest of the city, outside the walls, the knights of St. Lazarus. But the, the rest of the city became populated by, um, by uh, certainly by people who were servicing pilgrims, but also by people involved in various commercial activities, by industrial, uh, various industrial activities. So you'll have, um, um, you would have people um, who were, whose, whose profession was say leatherworking located in the southeast of, uh, southeast of the city in what's today the southern part of the Jewish quarter. Uh, near the dung gate, and the dung relates to the industry of the leatherworking because uh, animal dung was used um, for uh, tanning. Um, and um, and you had a, a large cattle market there, so you had people involved in butchery um, and furriers. Um, and you had um, in the west of the city a, a um, grain market you'd probably have mills as well, flour mills. Um, and there were no doubt many of the industries that we find in any other medieval city, uh, whether it's perhaps not glass making, but perhaps jewelry making, ceramics and various other things. And you certainly had people involved in industries that were related to, um, or crafts that were related to, to the pilgrim movement. And the pilgrimage is, is central to Jerusalem. The revival of Jerusalem from an empty city at the beginning of the 12th century to a, a fully settled city in the middle of the century was largely due to the um, efforts made to, to bring in the pilgrims and to support them when they were in, in the city. So, so um, um, you have industries relating to that. So a bit, for example, um, manufacturers of, of metal works, um, which might be religious items or souvenirs, crosses and uh, uh, ampulla for holy oil. Um, and we, we know of their existence from uh, medieval texts. Uh, and there were all sorts of people involved in, in, uh, in uh, other activities relating to the markets. So produce, pr pr producing food, cooks in the, the central street in Jerusalem was named Malquisinat, the street of bad cooking, because uh, apparently that was where sort of junk food was being prepared and sold to pilgrims. So you had cooks there. And that later became known as in, under um, the Ayyubids or the Mamluks as the street of the cooks. So it retained that function even after the Crusader period. Um, so yeah, a lot of different industries. And, and so you'd have regular people. So, so you, you have on the one level um, uh, people involved in religious activities, uh, communities around the churches and in the monasteries. But on the other hand, you have people involved in all these different daily activities of any that existed in any city in the Middle Ages. Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. 
One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I was wondering something that is connected to uh, the role of, uh, of gender. You talked about earlier Queen Melisende, and I also, you know, I want to use the, the reference of, of a movie, which I know is historically highly problematic and certainly did not really portray uh, Crusader Jerusalem properly, uh, Kingdom of Heaven, but uh, certainly it was very popular and somehow brought back attention to that period of time uh, as is in the movie, it, it portrays women uh, some sort of uh, with their own power. So I was wondering actually if really women had their own power in the city, if really leaving uh, Western Europe uh, somehow resetted also a little bit, uh, uh, you know, gender roles in uh, Crusader Jerusalem. Well, I imagine that, I mean, there were obviously certain women uh, high up in, in the higher levels of society who who um who were powerful women uh, and certainly melisenda is the the classical you know the, the the ideal example of that um it's very hard to say anything about societies uh, to to get into the grits of society and know what what the status of a woman was or what children were in the, in the city most of what we um learn from medieval sources are, are more very minor issues uh, quite interesting, but not so much speaking about power, the status of a woman, the strength of, of um, a woman in society. Um, more you come across things like, um, for example, there was in the hospital compound a place where women would leave children because they're the, from the, po the poverty and women who were, were poor and left their children there to, uh, uh, to be looked after. Um, and that, that sort of thing is expressed also in the the fall of the city in, in 1187, when uh, people leave, desiring to leave the city, are uh, required to pay um, a uh, tax in order to leave the city, and the women were, were given a, 
a lesser sum, which would maybe hints at some something regarding their their importance in society. But but um, no, really, to say anything in in depth about the position of women in in uh, Frankish society, well, you you might want to ask somebody more involved in in uh, the, the in that particular field than, than an archaeologist. Uh, uh, certainly, as an archaeologist, we do come across uh, um, evidence of women in uh, in cities and in and even in castles and places like that. And and just recently, uh, an excavation in the south of the city, uh, a very beautiful. Uh, um, earring was discovered, so there, there are things like that that you know <laughs> speak of of wealth and things like that. But but no, really, it's very hard to say anything about that. Well, certainly, I'm not the person to ask about. <laughs> Let me ask something uh, still connected to popular culture. I am currently teaching a, a course on global history of conspiracy theories, and while I normally tackle more contemporary issues, certainly the question of the Templars uh, has left since the suppression of the order stories, and some of these stories converted to conspiracy theories, uh, uh, often involving the, the famous question of the Holy Grail. But my question to you is that, was that a Holy Grail in the first place? I mean, was it this even a topic discussed in Crusader Jerusalem, or is it just the imagination and the fantasy that emerged after the suppression of the uh, Templars order? Well, I would say the second, your second suggestion is, is correct. I don't think so. I mean, you know, what was very prominent in in medieval in Crusader in the Latin Kingdom in in the in particularly in, in the Latin Kingdom, um, there was a great deal of of activity around um, relics, holy relics, uh, in general, um, and it became sort of an industry, a very popular industry, and and holy relics and and religious souvenirs of different types. Um, and uh, that was certainly something that that was of interest and and was um, conducted amongst the different people at the time. Um, but um, regarding as as for the Holy Grail, I think all these stories that have evolved around the Templars, as you say, they came afterwards after the uh, movement was uh, dismantled, and and uh, I don't think. Um, I mean, you know, people are always wondering about this, but I don't think there's any actual evidence for any activities around the issue of the Holy Grail. I mean, I've been asked dozens of times, you know, did, is, is there any point in digging under the Temple Mount? Will they find the temple, you know, objects and so forth? So, and this is, it's not, um, it's not something that I would think was was an issue so much in the, under the Crusaders. It's something more that's developed subsequently. I definitely share your view, but yeah. uh, it's true that in, in popular culture, and again, sometimes because of uh, movies and stories, then the topic uh, resurfaces and it gets its own life and it becomes even, even uh, stronger and stronger. But what instead is real, and I was curious uh, if you can perhaps tell us something about is uh, the amount of graffiti, particularly uh, around the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, that you can still uh, find, particularly the crosses. And I was wondering if those are connected to uh, the Crusader period, and uh, what do they represent? Well, I know that there's some recent work being done on these, and they've been examined with some sort of very special uh, photography material and uh, um, 
photography equipment and, and in an effort to see if they were, it, 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 you're talking about these crosses that you see as you go down the steps to the Chapel of St. Helena and so forth. Uh, and there are literally hundreds of these and there are, many of them are identical and they appear to have been done perhaps by one person, you know, rather than by separate pilgrims. And I, I'm not up to date with what the latest theories are. I know that um, the, the, there are people working on this at the moment. Um, uh, for example, in behind on the eastern wall of the chapel, there are, which you don't usually see, get up close to, there are a number of these crosses as well. And, and I know that they were being photographed and, and that some new um, work is being done on this, but I don't myself, I'm not acquainted with uh, what the conclusions were. I tended to, I've in the, in the past, I mean, I was always taught that, you know, the, every pilgrim came along and chipped his cross on, and you can see that some of them are individual crosses. And there are some heraldic symbols that were made by individuals, but a lot of them appear to be um, some somebody may have been paid to you know to chip them in or something, and and uh, you know they may be sort of a group thing, um, right? Uh, but you do get them outside of the church, the Holy Sepulchre, as well in other churches and on other buildings in the city. And in many cases, they are individual marks in other places, uh, particularly when you get heraldic marks, for example, in the chapel of the, whole, of the um, Last Supper on Mount Zion, where you have a number of heraldic symbols. Usually they're, they're rather later than the Crusader period. Though. Uh, in the church, the Holy Sepulchre itself, there are a number of heraldic designs as well. Um, and they would just be regular graffiti, some of them quite you know, they've worked on them quite a bit and did some very attractive uh, designs, but but they appear to be, in those cases, they appear to be actual individual pilgrims. You also wrote another uh, very important book, The Crusader World, which is sort of a discussion of uh, the Crusaders and their words, so not just uh, the material, but also, I guess, the mental and uh, to an extent also their presence uh, in, in the whole of uh, uh, the Holy Land, uh, largely defined or how defined was by, by, by them. And I was wondering if combining together your work on Jerusalem, but also at large, we can trace some sort of a long lasting legacy of Crusader presence that goes beyond also the buildings and the castles. In other words, what did they leave behind? Well, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, there's often uh, this question arises of what sort of legacy there is from the Crusades, and it, it tends, yeah, you know, people tend to see, think of the Crusades and think of obviously of castles and um, you know, physical remains. Uh, uh, the castles are the most prominent mark in the landscape that reminds us of that period of history, but there are other things, uh, um, and not all of them have remained as as um, uh, with, within the Holy Land, but they've spread beyond. Um, and one that comes to mind always for me is the sugar, sugar, because um, everybody knows sugar. Everybody eats sugar, uh, usually to our detriment. And, and uh, um, the sugar was, the, the sugar cane uh, existed obviously long before the Crusades, but when the when the first crusaders arrived in 1099 on the way down the coast they came across the sugarcane and they described the the 
historians that travel with the Crusades describe the sugar cane fields and so forth. And we know from research that's been done over, over a number of years now um, of the sugar industry that evolved in the 12th century under the Crusaders, uh, turning a, a minor sort of household industry that existed beforehand into a full-scale industry with mills and refineries scattered all over the well not all over but in a lot of areas in the in the kingdom of jerusalem particularly along the coast um as far south as tel aviv the southernmost sugar mill is in tel aviv itself um but all the way up north to uh, beirut particularly around the area of um, tyre and also the Jordan Valley from Becham south all the way down to the Dead Sea and even beyond the Dead Sea in the desert. And um, the large number of mills that were constructed in the 12th century um, introduced, were the result of this, um, of this activity was the introduction on a large scale of sugar to the West. And then it moved from the Holy Land to first to Cyprus, where also a large, under the Crusader Cyprus, there was a large scale industry, sugar industry, in, particularly in the southern part of the island. And from there to Sicily, and then eventually to Central America and spread throughout the world. But the, the, the roots of this as an industry and of the awareness or the acquaintance of, of modern society with sugar can be taken back to this activity in the 12th century, in 12th century Kingdom of Jerusalem. So, so I think that's one rather interesting example of, of uh, uh, heritage from the, uh, from the Crusader period that survived into the modern world. There aren't that many things that we could say. I mean, obviously, you know, knights and castles are no longer relevant to us, uh, to modern life. But sugar is, unfortunately, yes. In the, in the Middle Ages, it was regarded as something that's extremely healthy, and today it's regarded as something extremely unhealthy. So the attitudes have changed, but the sugar remains. And, and so I think that's probably the most colorful, if, if not the most um, important, but perhaps, the, perhaps it is the most important example of, of, uh, of something from the Kingdom of Jerusalem, from the Crusader experience that's continued on into to our days. There aren't that many things that we can really say, you know, that we, Used today or that we um, relate to today in some fashion that, that go back to the Crusader period. But sugar does. So there you are. I was wondering if, uh, with the end of the Crusader era, some individuals uh, did stop and eventually settled under new rulers, or did they all leave? Oh, no. I, th I think uh, certainly there were communities that remained, and a lot of the uh, uh, villagers. There's, I mean, not perhaps not enough work's been done on this, and today with modern uh, DNA, uh, a lot more can be done. But um, I, I'm quite sure that if this is done, um, it would prove that a lot of, of um, communities that had been, uh, or Frankish communities that, are, uh, or Eastern Christians living under the Franks, have continued on and and have either changed religion or and changed language or or evolved over time, but you know, also certainly uh, Christian communities in living in Israel today, some of them would have their roots, would trace their roots back at least partly to the Crusades, to the Franks. Um, it's hard to say to what degree. There's always been this debate about when the, when the, 
the move, the the conversion of of the Byzantine population, the Christian Byzantine population to Islam, when it reached its peak, and whether it was before the Crusades or after, and there's different views on that. Um, so what happens afterwards is is quite interesting, um, but it, it requires more research to really say anything of, of depth on that. I think the the possibilities today with DNA. Uh, uh, Perhaps, uh, perhaps will lead us to more answers on in that in that area. Yeah, DNA research uh, and uh, all of these uh, websites that give you access to your uh, sort of ancestry are certainly very interesting and fascinating. I mean, I, I did myself and I discovered, you know, mm. quite interesting bit of information about uh, where I'm from. Um, so I guess, yeah, it's uh, it's fascinating from, from that point of view. But again, problematic. We, we always need the context to understand what does that yeah. mean. Yeah. I just want to take the listeners uh, outside the walls of Jerusalem, a little bit farther north. So your recent work has been focusing recently on the castle of Montfort, which I must admit I've been and visited. Uh, and I also found it... Uh, Again, coming from the north of Italy, where we do have a lot of remains, particularly of that period of time. I come from an area which is very famous because there are plenty of uh, uh, remnants of the uh, uh, Matildic castle, so the period of Matilde di Canossa. So I was not really impressed. But then I realized mm -hmm. that actually there are many, uh, like Montfort, that is the place you're working on. And I was wondering what you know, places like Montfort can tell us about uh, the period of the Crusades. Why are these castles relevant in the history of the region? Well, I think, uh, and I won't take offense to the fact that you were not impressed by Montfort. <laughs> uh, I can understand what you're saying. Um, uh, and that to, to some degree relates to what I'm going to say. Um, the, the whole point of the castles in, in the Middle East, and it's somewhat different from what happened in, in Europe over uh, in, in the Middle Ages and the earlier periods. Um, the the situation the Franks found themselves in when they tried to settle in the Holy Land and in the uh, what became the northern states of the Holy, of, of uh, uh, the Crusades um, was very problematic from the demographic point of view. They were always a very small minority, and and they could muster an army, but they never could muster an army of the size of enemy armies. So they had to find a way to get around that. And, and it seems that what they did was that they made use of fortresses um, as a means of retaining a hold on the countryside, e even if the enemy comes in and burns the crops and destroys the villages, they're still holding on to these uh, fortresses. And so they retain their hold in the countryside. And this worked to a degree because the Muslim armies were often con uh, formed of, of um, agriculturalists, farmers, and uh, uh, and who didn't want to be away from their farms for terribly long periods of time. So they wouldn't um, attack a site which was going to hold out for for months if they could avoid it. Obviously, so um, so the castles were built to um, give the Franks a presence in the countryside and to retain it and to use and they use these these uh, fortresses and even small ones towers that were scattered all over the uh, landscape um, as centers of administration 
um, in the earlier periods in order to collect taxes from the local farmers and afterwards to 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 administer the their own settlements as well um, so the, the the purpose of the fortresses is um, mainly to have a hold on the on the land and to have a um, a place or centers for served as depots to collect taxes and uh, to collect agricultural agricultural uh, produce um, and and to and to retain their presence there and so less to um, to defend borders or, although they there were certain castles that had um, uh, defensive uh, primarily defensive purposes but they're quite often or many of the the castles were more um, for the for the purpose of of having a presence that could hold out when being being attacked over a long period of time. So Montfort is um, somewhat an exception in many ways. Um, it's a castle built by uh, the the smaller of the three large military orders: the Templars, the Hospitallers. The Teutonic Order was founded only after the Third Crusade and the um, uh, reconquest of Acre, and uh, um, it, because it was small and because it was a latecomer, it was under a lot of pressure from the two existing military orders who basically wanted to gobble it up to, to, to overtake its, uh, to take over its possessions and to, to control it. Um, and it seems that one of the questions that's often asked about Montfort is why it's located in a place it's located in, which is a very uh, uh, um, unusual position on uh, for a castle on a uh, on a point in, in a hill where you actually come down towards the castle if you're coming from the east uh, which makes it very weak um, uh, and why it was built in that particular location and it seems that it was built there uh, not because it doesn't defend anything it doesn't defend a road or, or any farmlands or any settlement or important water source or anything else it was built there it seems because that was it was it had certain uh, defensive features but it was too low down to to be really effective from that point of view but it, it um, is hidden by ranges of mountains that that uh, basically hide it from the north and the, the south and so so it was more or less an out of sight out of mind attitude to you know the Templars and the Hospitallers won't see it here so I mean obviously everyone knew it was there but it sort of uh, seems to be that the idea was just to have it sort of hidden away a bit in the, in the countryside rather than to defend anything. So it's a bit unusual, but most castles are, are built uh, with more consideration of the strategic importance of the location. Um, but you have castles that were obviously built for defending particular areas. Uh, the fortress on north of the Sea of uh, Galilee Vadumiakov or Chastelet was built to defend a, an important, one of the important uh, um, fords across the Jordan River. And you have like castles like Crack the Chevalier in the north defending the, the Homs Valley, which was a sort of a weak point in the defenses that, uh, that could have been very effectively used to split the northern states from the southern states. So, so there are obviously castles that were built with much more understandable defensive purposes than the Montfort. As we reach the end of the, uh, the interview, I wanted to ask you something about your latest uh, endeavor. So you engage with uh, 
novel writing uh, with a very fascinating title, The Soulful Priest. And my understanding, this is a, a novel that uh, takes the readers back to the Crusader period, but also forth to um, the Mandate era. So I was wondering, first of all, how did you get to uh, write uh, an historical novel and uh, what is it all about? Well, actually I wrote it about 10 years ago and uh, I was advised at the time that to leave it until I retire. You know, uh, <laughs> academics often uh, um, are not particularly uh, attracted towards <laughs> the taking historical topics and turning them into, into fiction. It can be a, a, a dangerous area. So, and that's what I did. And basically I, I published it this year after uh, retirement. Um, but I, I don't certainly don't regret having written it in, in quite the opposite. Um, it's a, a novel which is largely based on, on well, it's partly based on, on fact. Um, certainly the part dating to the mandate period because uh, it's, it's a novel about Montfort Castle and it's about two phases. It's about the, the arrival of certain person to the castle, an imaginary person you know, to the castle at the time of the siege. And the, that's part of the story, which is the larger part of the story, um, is the, the, the description of the siege is based on, on information that I've come across through 15 years of, of involvement at, at Montfort. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a realistic account of what it probably was like to be at, in the siege of Montfort in 1271. But of course, the story itself is is imagined, yes, uh, as novels are. Um, the other part is also based on a lot of fact, and that is the story about the excavation of Montfort, which took place at the original excavation. We we began working at Montfort in 2006, and we began excavating in 2011, I think it was. Um, but in 1926, the Metropolitan Museum of New York sent out a small team to dig at Montfort with the aim of finding a suit of armor, which is a very illogical aim, but in, in 1926, they were not aware of what happens to iron if it's left in, the, in, the, in a rainy area for, for uh, several hundred years. Um, but um, um, that was the intention. And the team, a tiny little team of three or four people um, and uh, 50, about 50 at the peak workers from the nearby villages um, excavated for a month in, in, the, in um, the spring of 1926. And they excavated a large part of the main buildings of the castle. Unfortunately, it would have been nice if they left it for us to do that. But uh, they did uh, quite a lot of work there, removing a lot of the soil um, exposing a lot of, uh, and unfortunately destroying a lot of things as well because the, the methods were not so great then. But they did, they produced a, uh, or published a small booklet on the results of the excavation. And um, what's interesting about the work that they did and the archeologist and the person who had organized this excavation um, did a very good job, uh, very intelligent people. And they did a, a fine job of discussing 
um, daily life in the castle. They gave up on the, in the end, it was described as a miserable failure, the, the aim of the excavation to find Sudama. It's not surprising, but the, they did discover a lot of other things. But what interested me when I was collecting material to, uh, for a book which we published on, on Montfort um, was that I got hold of the archives of that excavation. There were hundreds of letters and telegrams and things like that. And there was this whole interesting story there of a dispute between the director and his helper and uh, uh, quite a dramatic little story. And so I embellished that and turned it into something fictional. Um, but once again, I think it gives you a fairly good idea for, you know, if somebody's coming from the point of view of, you know, what it was like to excavate a site under, under mandate uh, uh, Palestine, um, they could get a good idea of it from from the from the book. So it's a it's a fiction, but it's uh, it has a lot of fact in mixed in with the fiction. I guess I was going to ask you. So what's uh, the next project? Well, that goes back to my uh, to my <laughs> to Australia. Um, I have a photograph uh, on my desk of two great uncles who served in Gallipoli in the First World War. <laughs> And, and then later, one of them went on to fight in, in northern France, and uh, one ended up with uh, shell shock, and the other one was injured. And uh, so it's a, a fictional story based on that idea. It's not about them, but it's based. It's about uh, um, a very important episode in Australian history, uh, which is the Gallipoli campaign, and about uh, something about the First World War in general, which has always been a topic that's interested me beyond uh, archaeology and uh, crusaders. This was professor, retired professor, Indrian uh, Boas, uh, previously a, a professor of archaeology and history at the University of Haifa, authors of a large numbers of volumes dedicated to a, a crusader archaeology and obviously uh, also the city of Jerusalem. And lately, he just published uh, the Sulfur Priest available in bookstores, but uh, more importantly, and more conveniently, also on Amazon. And I also want to mention uh, to our listener, uh, his website, adrianjboas.com. Adrian, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks, and I'll see you next time. 